0: Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Well, the first The Law Down Under podcast for 2024, uh, beginning of the year. I'm super excited because today I have with me in the podcast studio, James Cochran. James is a cryptocurrency and digital assets expert here in New Zealand. He is one of the go-tos and has been at the forefront of demystifying some of the aspects of cryptocurrency and its application in the law. Now, James is also a partner of Lane Neve's dispute resolution and litigation team. Uh, he's got ex- extensive experience in banking and finance, insolvency, insurance. He's passionate about all things cryptocurrency and Web three technology. He's been named by New Zealand lawyer as a change maker in its last year's most influential lawyers rankings. In 2022, Doyle named him as a leading insolvency and restructuring lawyer in New Zealand. He's a founding member of the New Zealand. Institute of Credit Management, he's also on the Executive Council, and the Legal Working Group for Blockchain New Zealand. Today we're going to talk to James about the law of cryptocurrency and digital assets. I suspect we'll probably talk about blockchain technology as we as we go. We're going to look at the challenges facing investors, including emerging issues locally and overseas, and consider ways in which New Zealanders can protect themselves as the law in this area continues to
1: evolve and develop. Hello, James. Good to see you. Hey, Chris. Thanks for that very kind uh, introduction and uh, great to be on the podcast. Oh, it's
0: just great to have you here. It's, um, hey, this, this, is this your first day back from your, your summer holiday? What's,
1: what's been happening? I wish. I wish. Mm. I was really enjoying the sunshine. Uh, no, it was back in the office uh, Monday last week. So oh, back on the tools.
0: Back on the tools. Okay. All right. So here we are, 2024. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay. Cryptocurrency, blockchain, what's the connection between the two?
1: So, um, blockchain technology, just trying to simplify it, is this is how I view it. Yeah. Um, Basically, what you're talking about is what's called a decentralised network, so a network of computers uh, that have a record of transactions, and the transactions are loaded into blocks. They are verified by the network, generally by, cryptocurrency, uh, by um, cryptography, yeah, and uh, then new packets of data are loaded onto blocks. So you have a whole chain of um, information where you can see uh, the first transaction in a block and you can see the latest transaction in a block. And so crypt- cryptocurrency is, uh, I guess, digital currency, which is... Recorded in a blockchain across a decentralized network of computers. Um, So, um, what, why this is unique is because traditionally, when we have um, uh, exchanged uh, money, we've had to rely on centralized centralized parties. You know, like a, a bank or a company to facilitate a transaction between individuals. To ensure that they get their their money.
0: Okay, so so, so we're we're going to have a, a sort of a, a range of listeners, hmm. from 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 those possibly that don't even have a computer on their desk to to, to I suspect some listeners who actually probably know um, a programming language or two. Yes. Okay. So, um, it, it, but we'll, but most people, I think, everyone understands that if you've got a bank account with a with a trading bank, um. And you've got money in there, you can go to the bank and say, you know authenticate yourself, you know identify yourself and and say oh, i've I've got an account here you know what's what's my balance and, and and they are the keeper of that balance they will tell you you've got this account and this money's in that account, but am I right that they're the only ones who can tell you that
1: correct and yeah. you know this is a centralized entity mm. That has a uh, its own record of your account balance. Yeah. Um, this is in in New Zealand we take this for granted that you mm. can go to the bank. You go to actually lots of banks and open up multiple bank accounts, but for uh, many people across the world, especially developing nations, they don't have uh, bank accounts. They don't have a record of property ownership like we have LINS in New Zealand or the Personal Property Securities Register. Uh, And that causes problems for them in terms of proving their identity for transacting and things like that. So what what cryptocurrency and um, blockchain technology does is remove the need to have a centralised entity telling you what your balance is, and uh, you can um, transact peer to peer, peer to peer, do um, transactions. I can transfer Chris um, some Bitcoin, and that's verified by the, um, the what are called nodes in the Bitcoin network that effectively verify that that's a, a correct transaction. Um, so in New Zealand, we are comfortable that um, if we put some money in the bank that we're going to be able to go and get it out at some point, right? Whereas if you are, for example, um, in uh, Russia and uh, your president decides to invade Ukraine, uh, next minute you might find if all your savings are in a a Russian bank account, uh, which is on the SWIFT network, next thing you have no access to funds in your bank account because everyone's been locked out. Or if you're in Cyprus in 2013, and your government owes money to um, another country, um, you may find yourself locked out of your bank account.
0: Or so. if you have an account with Lehman Brothers in
1: 2008,
0: um, correct? Yep. Silicon Valley
1: Bank, more yep. recently. Yeah, Yep. yeah.
0: Yep. Okay. So, so this is, I guess, the myth that um, a bank actually holds physical cash of that represents or equates to the balance of all their account holders. Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. And whereas with crypto...
1: Just to expand on that, what banks do is they take your money and uh, take deposits and then they lend that money out to someone else. They Mm -hmm. what's called rehypothecate it. Uh, So at any one time, the bank may have much greater liabilities to uh, parties then it does have assets available to meet them yeah so if there is some uh, reason why uh, all of a sudden uh, people want their money out which is often referred to as a bank run Mm. um, that's why there can be insufficient cash available to pay everyone out this is what happened in the um Particularly in the you know the stock market crash in the nineteen twenties,
0: and this is the area where uh, here in New Zealand, with our um, central bank setting reserves that the banks have to hold, and the banks complain about it that they've got to hold these massive reserves, and and that's to I guess to ensure stability in our banking industry, um, to avoid you know the risks of of total collapses. Is that right?
1: One reason, yeah, yeah,
0: it's one of the reasons, and of course our banking industry is relatively. Highly regulated. Um, uh, when I say relatively, I mean across sort of international comparisons.
1: Um, but yeah, there's a lot of compliance for um, banks to operate here, and, yeah. um, and that's not that's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. Right?
0: Whereas cryptocurrency, not so.
1: Yeah. It's. Um, I guess there's a perception that uh, there's no regulation of cryptocurrency. There's no uh, laws that relate to it, mm. and. Look, that might be true for certain protocols, where, for example, like Bitcoin, mm. no one knows exactly who the founder of Bitcoin is. There's no head office for Bitcoin. There's no CEO, board of directors. Mm. Uh, no, it's a protocol across the internet, but bit more like HTTPS, SMTP. You know, mm. those sort of protocols. Um, Mm-hmm. That type of cryptocurrency is uh, hard, if not impossible, to regulate. I mean, there are arguments um, around at the moment about whether or not Bitcoin is a security or is it a commodity. It appears in the US, at least, that they've taken the view that Bitcoin is treated more like a commodity. Um, but in New Zealand, we have, uh, while we don't have any specific crypto law, we don't have the Crypto Act 2024. Um, we have a number of existing laws um, that could potentially apply.
0: Yeah, there is always this element of trying to shoehorn in um, existing laws into emerging technologies. I mean, you see it. We saw this with uh, the law of defamation, trying to fit that into um, going from mm. what ultimately was, I guess, the, you know, the printing press to suddenly the World Wide Web. Hey, let's take a little trip down memory lane. Sure. Um, so uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, back in 2008, releases his his white paper. And I, I guess that's kind of the start of, of Bitcoin being released to the public. Not, not in terms of a, a launch of it, but just it's, I guess it's more... Theoretical application, um, you know, he mines a, or someone's mining a few million bitcoins back then. But then the the first transaction is in January two thousand and nine, when um, assuming it is Satoshi who's actually doing this, or someone who we believe is, sends ten coins to an early developer called Hal Finney. But then, you know. Time at this stage isn't moving super quick. I'm just going to jump on and sort of the narrative and the chronology mm. to say, and um, you know the first you know famous transaction, and I I have been on the phone to Pizza Hut in case you want to the
1: give Bi- me the Bitcoin pizza.
0: Give me give me ten thousand bitcoins for two pizzas. <laughs> I'll take five thousand bitcoins for one, which in, was 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 traded. Um, I'll just put this into monetary mm. terms now. Um, today.
1: Are you on on the Bitcoin (laughs) pizza page on Twitter? That gives you a daily update of what it's worth. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So the daily update today, as as in the 23rd of January 2024, is uh, 10,000 bitcoins Mm. for two pizzas uh, equates to 604 million Australian dollars or 654 million New Zealand. It's (laughs) It's
1: eye eye watering, isn't it? (laughs) It's
0: eye eye watering. Mm. It's eye watering. So. So this was a, you know, we're now, I guess, to be fair, we're coming up to fourteen years of, of Bitcoin being traded; its its value just going up exponentially. Um, but our laws haven't really embraced how significant this one cryptocurrency is. And mm. what what are we talking here? Hundreds of cryptocurrencies now? There?
1: Oh, there's there's probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands, of different yeah. um, cryptocurrencies and. Um, protocols, if you included NFTs in that, which can be, you know, minted in the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's probably a bit hard to comprehend. You know, if you go on yes. a, a site like CoinGecko, they'll probably tell you there's at last count 15,000, you know, different cryptocurrencies or something like that. Mm.
0: Well, they they just seem to, to pop up, you know, on and a that, daily and, basis. And, you
1: know. and yeah. they're not all the same. No, they can be very different.
0: Um, Ethereum um, went live in July 2015, so just you know uh, nine, you know eight and a bit years ago. Um, that seemed to offer possibly the first real contender against, well, not against, but as a competitor to Bitcoin, and maybe because of its ability for developers to plug in different functional, well, programs, add-ins to to its use, whereas Bitcoin, I I guess, is older tech. Um, Would you think your Bitcoin is, um, uh,
1: until more recently, it's largely done one thing, and that's do it very simply and very well, Mm. very securely. Uh, Bitcoin uh, does essentially digital money very well, whether that's a... um, Uh, like digital cash like it was intended to be or whether Mm. it is a store of value is, um, I guess, really up for debate. It's probably more of the latter. Some people consider it more like digital gold now.
0: I was going to say, would you regard it as almost like the gold standard, you know, all the equivalent to... In
1: in terms of um, when I look at um, these protocols, I guess you can make some sort of broader um, generalisations. Typically, the older the protocol is, a lot of the time, the more decentralized it is. Um, and the more decentralized it is, often the more secure it is. Um, but, you know, something like Bitcoin has uh, never had its blockchain hacked, if, if you want to use yeah. that expression. So there's a complete record of transactions from the Genesis block, which is what you were talking about in yeah. 2009, where Satoshi, whoever he, she, it, they are, yeah. Um, some people suggest it could be multiple people. Some people suggest it could be the CIA. Some people suggest it could be artificial intelligence. Um, quite a wild story. Very, um, you know, there's been a court case about it uh, uh, where a guy was claiming to be Satoshi um, Craig Wright, but um, that is a protocol that has. Its blockchain ledger is complete. It's, you, you haven't had any um, third parties being able to take control of the of the ledger and alter it in any way.
0: Yeah. So uh, overall, the, the the computers that that have access to the blockchain, its ability to verify authenticate hmm. each transaction has
1: kept it secure. Correct. Yeah. And then Ethereum comes along, and Ethereum had um, uh, the ability to do. Um, different things that had, um, you know, the ability to do smart contracts, so you could program um, um, transactions and contracts, to, which would auto execute if certain events happened, and that allowed uh, developers to build uh, applications on top of the Ethereum protocol, which mm. are called DApps, um, decentralized applications. And that led to uh, things like decentralised finance, uh, led to uh, people uh, eventually building out um, things like NFTs. Yeah,
0: um, break us down, the acronym
1: NFT, what does that stand for? A non-fungible token, as opposed to a cryptocurrency like mm. eth- um, Ethereum um, uh, or or Bitcoin, which are fungible, mm. you know, it's like... Um, Exchanging the cash that we we use uh, in um, fiat terms is uh, what's called fungible, so you can change a five dollar note for a ten dollar note; they're all interchangeable. Um, Whereas NFTs tend to be unique digital assets.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, um, well, some people might appreciate or use an example. Uh, Let's let's just take a a a, a unique digital painting. uh, that can be an NFT where you can buy it. You're the only person who who owns that unique digital painting um, and you can you can trade it if you want to.
1: Yeah, so there's a, a lot of um, uh, use cases for NFTs. So the, the artwork or the mm. digital collectible is one of the sort of key or first use cases that we've seen. Um, there was... Uh, for example, there was a artwork um, by a digital artist called people um, called the first five thousand days, which sold at I think it was Christie's auction house for, for sort of sixty odd million US, and this was a collection of um, images, uh, the, uh, image files, but also sort of um, GIFs and things like that. It was all merged, uh, done done work uh, every day for. Five thousand days, and I'd put it into a mosaic, wow. and um, so that you know, NF, NFTs can in, include within the data packet. This is how I understand. I'm not a programmer, No. right? I'm um, I'm a art school dropout who then mm. be, went on to become a lawyer. But um, yeah, so you can have uh, JPEG files. Um, movie files, MP4s, audio files, a whole range of digital files, whatever you want to include in it. Um, and, but that, that NFT is typically unique to other NFTs. Yeah, but
0: isn't this – sorry, we're now kind of getting into the area of intellectual property, but, um, but it's fascinating. Mm. Isn't the technology of NFTs such a great way of um, validating, verifying, authenticating, doesn't matter which way you want to describe it, um, uh, the uh, authenticity of, of of a work, whether it's a photograph an artwork, whether it, you know it could be a song, it could be you know it could be yep. anything, a- and then being able to then because you know digital things can are so easily reproduced, correct, and and then to be able to 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 allocate uh, ownership to it on a proprietary level, where where someone can say, hey, I'm the owner of this this creation,
1: okay? yes. Yeah, there's a concept in uh, the traditional art world called provenance. Yeah. That's where you are able to track an artwork back to its original artist to ensure that it's legitimate. Yes. And the um, NFTs in the blockchain, because you can see all the record of transactions, Mm. um, provided there, is you can be satisfied that it is the original artist who, who actually did the work, yeah. Then um, and that they were the party that minted it, uh, then you are able to trace that back to to them uh, to show that provenance. And you, the other thing that it does is, as you say, on the internet, you can just you know copy paste, replicate, replicate uh, indefinitely, but the the blockchain can create that digital scarcity. Yeah, and um, you are able to to show proof that that is a one of one or that is the first in a collection of 10,000.
0: Yeah, so it, it could have a like a really good legal and, and practical copyright application, you know, in, t- in terms of someone being able to assert ownership over um, uh, something as being a unique work, you know, they're the, they're the end or, or they've purchased, a, you know, off someone a unique work. Okay,
1: correct. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've described this, um, the opportunity for um, particularly creatives – and the um, estates of creatives and trusts mm. behind them too as a, as a honeypot for future revenue for beneficiaries. Mm. Um, one of the, I guess, most notable, notable transactions involving an NFT in New Zealand was um, some slides of Charles Goldie were sold by Web's Auctions. Yeah. Um, and this was yeah, the opportunity to buy the physical... Uh, I think they were the plates or the slides of Charles Goldie and his studio. And then you could also buy the NFT. You could choose to, if you wanted to, break the original so that only the digital was left um, or you could keep them both. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah, uh, this is a really interesting time for intellectual property in terms of the digital. Um, I think, you know, you look at uh, artists, um, musicians, uh, Kings of Leon have released NFTs that have unique sort of fan experiences that come with their uh, NFT. You know, it might be um, exclusive video content or a unique audio or something like that. Um, maybe a, a specific fan experience. You know, so you're getting like a, um, a bundle of contractual rights when you acquire the NFT that is different to. Just going down and buying the CD or the vinyl. Yeah, you've got um, uh, well Muse. I think with a last year with the first band to do a uh, number one UK album, uh, that was and that was released as an NFT. Yep. Um, so, yeah. So so and and
0: this goes back to the scarcity issue. Whereas NFTs are enabling um, a, a, a content creator. Say oh, I've got something that I can trade with you that no one else can get their hands on. Okay, um, they they can't replicate it because the block, the underlying blockchain technology that sits behind it will well, will be able to authenticate that this is one of one or one of ten thousand or whatever number is set up for that purpose.
1: Yeah, correct, and also you still have the overlay of traditional intellectual property law yeah. because. You will have, uh, for example, there was um, uh, litigation uh, overseas in relation to um, a particular NFT project called Board Ape Yacht Club. Um, The owner of that uh, collection um, brought um, uh, a claim against, I believe the outfit was named Ryder Rips. They had, Ryder Rips had created essentially like a copy of the Board 8 Yacht Club collection. And um, it was, in essence, a a claim that traditional intellectual property rights, you know, trademarks and and copyrights were being infringed. The argument was that, you know, the the images are all um, unique in themselves, but then there was sort of passing off elements as well.
0: Yeah, uh, thinking about it legally, the the, the blockchain and the NF- NFTs generally probably provide a more of an evidential, a more relevance from an evidential point of view when you've got a copyright or a trademark um, infringement claim because mm. you, can, you can say uh, if there's an argument over um, originality or yes. ownership, okay, this is when the tech can be rolled out, mm-hmm. you know, Probably needs to be explained by an expert to a to a judge um, that uh, can um, assure a fact finder mm-hmm. that the person asserting you know uh, originality or and or ownership is, is actually
1: correct. Yeah, uh, there was um, <clears throat> another case involving trademark. The luxury brand Hermes AMAs, mm-hmm. uh, brought an, um, brought a case against the creator of a um uh, an nft project called uh, meta birkins so these were um i guess bags that yeah. used the birkin name and uh, even though they had included disclaimers that there were you know there was no relationship to um and, mm. and birkin um the the court in that case I think it was a us jury found that there was you know infringement of uh, airmaze's intellectual property rights um
0: passing off of of it yep. yeah
1: yeah yeah uh, and so ordered in that case for those nfts to be what's called burned which is mm. just a um, smart contract as I understand it, the smart contract is just uh, it ends it goes nowhere and so that's unable to be transferred
0: yeah okay so that's just brought to a, a digital death correct yeah the the smart contracts are great um uh, Great piece of technology in a way, um, particularly when you're um, uh, dealing um, uh, with parties who have concern over, for example, security. You know, if I if I do the work, provide the product um, or the services, am I going to get paid? Because of this whole concept of auto execution, can you can you walk us through, you know, uh, how that works? Maybe a practical example.
1: Uh, so um, I, I guess you could – one example might be uh, if there's a smart contract in respect of an aeroplane flight, uh, you could have kind of like an insurance contract. Mm. If, uh, if the flight is cancelled for some reason, the um, technology will automatically reflund, refund the paying ticket. So that's yeah. a very basic example mm. through my non uh, – mm. Um, programmer, yeah. Um, uh, lens. Um, so, what this can potentially do is remove a lot of parties in that process, mm. and therefore reduce the cost. Yeah. So um, rather yep. than,
0: you know, turning up at the airport, the flight's been cancelled, having to get on the phone to the travel agent. Yeah. Saying, hey, you know, the flight's been cancelled. Um, uh, they're saying that I've got to contact you to get a refund. They then, this travel agent then gets in touch with the airline and then the airline then has to try and work out with their credit department what to do. There, there, there could be multiple people across multiple organisations having to work through something as, as everyday occurrence, as a, a flight being cancelled, uh, to organise a refund. But Correct. with a smart contract... Um, the technology knows flight's been cancelled the effect of that is is that it should be a refund money should be taken from this account
1: and moved to this one that's yeah. how I understand it yeah, yeah.
0: great so anything yeah. to become more more efficient hey yeah,
1: yeah. I, I, and you know sort of building on NFTs I mean it's not just digital collectibles it's uh, not just uh, creatives who are using it mm. you know uh, there was not so long ago it was either last year or the year before um in a case where uh, some cryptocurrency had been allegedly stolen or misappropriated and moved to um, a, a different wallet, then uh, the court uh, granted um, orders, you know freezing the account uh, and those orders were delivered by way of nft. Right. So okay. the, the NFT was dropped into the offender's wallet yeah. to give them notice of the um, the court orders, the existence of the orders. The existence of the orders. So it's a sort of substituted service. Like type. a substituted this is but yeah. this is a scenario where they didn't yeah. necessarily know the name of the party who had received the cryptocurrency.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: So um you know, quite a, a a novel use but also, you know, you have not just um and that's an example of where NFTs could include a court order. But you also have, for example, it could represent an, another real-world asset. And you have, for example, a holding in a case of um, wine or ten thousand pounds of granite or something like that. You mm-hmm. know, it can um, can represent these uh, real-world assets. Uh, and this is something that um, uh, Larry, I think it's Larry Fink, is the um, uh, one of the heads of um, big asset management named BlackRock has recently been talking about in terms of um, protocols like Ethereum being able to be uh, utilised to represent um, um, real-world assets, and that's how you know transacting via the blockchain um, can be potentially, and smart contracts can potentially be more efficient than how they're, Presently transferring stocks and things like that
0: from more watching. traditional lanes and okay. also more secure. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this goes back to the issue of uh, verification or you know validation mm. of, of transactions. Um, let's let's get back to cryptocurrency. Um, sort of, let's talk about some of the main actors in it. Um, so we've talked about Ethereum, we've talked about blockchain. So you know we're not too sure, as you've rightly said. Who actually created Bitcoin? What created it? You know, etc. Um, but so you've got uh, cryptocurrency creators; they're a um, they're a, they're an actor in um, in, in this environment. Uh, then we've got uh, exchanges. What, what's a what's a cryptocurrency exchange? What's their role and function?
1: Yeah, so you um, uh, an exchange is like a marketplace where you can um, buy. Um, different types of cryptocurrency. It might be what's called uh, Spot, which is actually mm-hmm. trading the actual cryptocurrency itself. Yeah. Uh, or there might be derivatives of a of a, um, of a type of, of currency. You even have NFT marketplaces where you can uh, trade NFTs. Yes, um, it's a little bit like an online music store where you can go and choose which NFT you like and things like that.
0: Okay, and so how... Practically, um, this is more for the listeners who possibly haven't delved into a bit of cryptocurrency or NFT trading. How does someone hold uh, a Bitcoin or or an NFT? Uh, you know, because it's it's not like a well, maybe it is a little bit like a, an online bank account, hmm. but it's not like you know having um, you know a physical money sitting in a wallet. But let's talk about wallets.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. Um you can have what, a, there's a lot of terminology here. Mm. So you can have what's called a hot wallet,
0: yeah.
1: um, uh, which is connected to the internet. You can have a cold wallet, which is not connected to the internet. Um, you, you can have what's called a, a non-custodial non-custodial wallet or a self-custody wallet and that is where the person is responsible for maintaining their own what are called private keys yeah. and passcodes so if um
0: and pass phrases
1: pass phrases yeah, yeah uh, so um that is opposed to a custodial wallet which is typically managed by someone else Yep. More often than not, that's an exchange. Essentially, what you are doing is you are um, uh, you are trusting that a centralised entity is going to um, properly manage your crypto holdings.
0: Okay. Well, what happens if uh, one of these centralised entities, like um, Bahama-based uh, FTX back in November 22, collapsed uh, nearly $9 billion US dollars stolen? Um, not including the losses for for others, what you know, what what happens then? Like with with if if they're holding your cryptocurrency, so it's
1: it's a bit like uh, so that I guess to be clear, mm. when Satoshi wrote the Bitcoin white paper, it was envisaged that um, parties would, would self custody, right. that they, they would yep. have their own wallets, uh, and they would. Um, uh, and they would be able to control those wallets. So they would have if they had the private keys, they' would be able to move um, their Bitcoin as they choose. They're not responsible to any centralized entity. no one's able to so long as you know that that passcode, that seed phrase, you're able to control what you do with with the funds. Whereas if you have your money on an exchange like an FTX, like a in New Zealand, we had Cryptopia, yeah, which went insolvent, and
0: I reality. want to talk about that a bit yeah. later on because that that's actually a really great example for for listeners about you know how bad things can go. But mm. um, sorry, carry on.
1: Yeah, uh, you don't have control. You mm. are um more like a traditional centralized banking relationship. Yeah. You're relying on your bank to be able to to get your funds out, and so what you have in these um, sort of big crypto exchange collapses is um, the scenario where if there's a hack or some, a theft of assets or something like that, yeah. they have been doing uh, other things which um, have resulted in there not being funds held, uh, an appropriate amount of funds held for users or the users' funds are not segregated, then those people may get locked out. And there's a typically an insolvency process um, it might be in the Bahamas. It might be in uh, the United States. It might be in Australia. You know, FTX is one of the biggest insolvencies in the world.
0: Might be in Nigeria.
1: <laughs> it's 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 probably um, it, it, it'd be an um, just an enormous undertaking for the insolvency practitioners in many jurisdictions to to work out. Um, who the claimants are? Are they legitimate? And um, well, also what, what sort of yeah. what yeah. what is their status as a claimant in the uh, insolvency? Are they a trust creditor, mm. or are they a um, more like a, a banking creditor, where they um, uh, are just um, going to share in part of the pool of assets that might be available? Or are there assets held on trust?
0: And of course, this is going to raise issues of international law, conflicts of law, you know, enforceability. I mean, if you're a, you're sitting here in Auckland, or or, or or even in Perth, and you've got uh, assets sitting in a in an exchange somewhere else in the world. You're not necessarily going to be able to rely on the banking regulatory environment or, or, or any regulatory environment within New Zealand or Australia is going to provide you with a solution straight away.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will uh, use cryptocurrency exchanges or centralised exchanges mm. uh, and not necessarily know where they are located. Yeah. It um, can take a lot of reading into the terms and conditions to even try and identify where... The digital assets are um, so. Yeah, there's a whole whole bunch of different uh, laws that could apply. There's there can be um, legal actions in different countries for a particular insolvency. Mm. Mm.
0: Well, look, let's talk about. Um, I, I do want to talk about crypto here. You can see I'm amping at the bit over this one, but uh, let's let's just jump jump to uh, a scenario that is going to affect everyone listening to this podcast. don't want to be the prophet of doom and gloom here, but at some point we're all going to die, okay? And we're going to know people that are that are, that are going to die. And some of the people that we know and might be related to or be close to might have, you know, some cryptocurrency or some NFTs, just some digital assets. And, you, James, you were just mentioning before about, um, you know, exchanges or looking after yourself you know these assets. What, 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 in your experience, if anything, are people who are holding these assets doing? You know, are doing to ensure that you know, if the day comes and they drop dead, that those assets are able to be managed through their estate.
1: It's a good question,
0: and there are, especially, especially if you're the only one who knows the key. And that's, you've dropped dead.
1: This, <laughs> this I guess, is if if you are self-custodying your assets, you're the only one who knows the passwords and the the seed phrases, mm. private keys. If you do drop dead, that's it. The that particular cryptocurrency stays on that blockchain and it never moves again. Okay. So there might um, there must
0: be some of that
1: as you know out there. <laughs> there there's there's actually a lot of that out there, and um, there are arguments that. Um, Bitcoin is um, in fact deflationary because the amount of people who lose access to their um, to be able to move their, their Bitcoin
0: yeah.
1: uh, actually exceeds the issuance of new Bitcoin through the mining process. Mm. Uh, so there are a range of different ways that people can deal with this. Um, I've um, worked with a colleague. Um, Kizia Denhart and we presented a, a paper to ADLS for the Cradle to the Grave conference. Um,
0: now the Law Association.
1: Now the Law Association, yeah. and um, it's you have to have uh, do a reasonable amount of planning to understand, um, but there are security issues in terms of how you you can manage your private keys. You, as a lawyer, I don't want a client to email me their passcode or their seed phrase because then uh, potentially that could be uh, intercepted by cyber thieves and um, an employee might see an opportunity. You know, there's a lot of risk. Well, it's
0: passing across networks. In fact, multiple networks.
1: It's just – it's effectively like giving me a $100 bill, Mm. you know, and um, so – Managing, I guess, one way that you could potentially manage this scenario is to um, divide up passcodes and um, and seed phrases. And so different parties hold parts. And uh, so no one party has the entire seed phrase to be able to just unilaterally action move uh, the, um, the crypto. And this is a... a a relevant consideration, um, relationship property disputes, where you might have a third party uh, custodian who will take custody of the assets, move it into a, a different wallet which is controlled by someone else. You have um, other solutions which are called um, multi signature wallets, where you might have um, more than one party has to uh, approve the transaction before funds can be moved. Um, and you might, in fact, um, uh, determine that maybe a, a um, spread the risk approach might be better, where you are prepared to um, put some on exchange, accepting the risk. You know, there's diff- different um, different risk profiles depending on what you choose to do. You, know, yeah, you actually, might, yeah, yeah. you I- m- might think holding. Uh, cryptocurrency on exchange with a fully regulated entity like Coinbase is comparatively less risky than holding it on um, another entity like Binance, which is the biggest exchange in the world.
0: Yeah, um, but unregulated.
1: Well, uh, it, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say it's unregulated, but you know, Binance has just got itself in trouble and had to pay a $4.5 billion fine. But, um, mm. yeah, it's um, not necessarily domiciled in any one particular location. It tends to move its... Um, uh, domiciled around. Domiciled around, <laughs> and, um, whereas something like Coinbase is... I believe it's located in New York, subject to New York banking regulation and mm. things like that. So...
0: Okay, look, you just mentioned before, um, I mean, we'll we'll come back to the the estate side because I'm keen to ask you some questions about, you know, perhaps what, you know, people can do to make life a bit easier for those they leave behind and and, and those who are left behind, you know, things that they can do Mm. uh, around cryptocurrency and or digital assets generally. But let's just talk about um, relationship property because, of course, these assets are property and... um, uh, putting aside all the the legal arguments about whether something's separate, um, if you have got, I'll just use a simple example. During the course of a relationship, the the the, the parties to it acquire um, some Bitcoin, and then when it comes to dividing up their relationships, you know, the law at least here in New Zealand and 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 also Australia is, is a presumption of equal sharing. But, you know, what if one party is unaware that the other party's got digital assets? Um, I mean, it's not, you know, like having um, a, a lawyer write to the, the trading banks mm. and, and getting them to confirm whether such and such has a, an account. Correct. Um, it, 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 this, this makes it a bit more challenging, doesn't it?
1: It, it can. So if, um, if, if a party's not I, – I have to say I'm not a um, – no. I'm not a family lawyer. Um, I have done relationship property, uh, certain relationship property cases. They tend to be ones where there's been a trust or company director um, dispute, which is Mm. um, funnily enough because it's between our um, two partners who are uh, going through some disharmony. But um, there are... As I understand the process, uh, generally the parties will exchange what are called, I think, the PR one forms, where they have to list their assets. Their disclosure. Yeah, their disclosure. Yeah. So assets and liabilities. You, yeah. um, I guess, you, with some sleuthing, if you mm. if you believe that your your partner has been acquiring digital assets and uh, hasn't necessarily been truthful, you there's mm. places where you can look to try and work out uh, to you know, try and follow the money. Yeah. is typically, um, uh, let, let's just take a, a sort of more simple scenario where if you assume at the start of the relationship no one had any digital assets mm. to start with um, and you're just using money that was um, generated during the course of the relationship, um, that money has to turn from NZ dollars into cryptocurrency mm. somehow um, you know, that might be, um, you should be able to see on the bank statements, uh, money being transferred to an exchange. Um, if you see you know, um, uh, random amounts that are going out that don't look like they're going for, sp- for specific bills, there's, um, you know, perhaps they might relate to an exchange where they're getting converted from New Zealand dollars into into cryptocurrency and then sent to a wallet somewhere. So... Say for example, there should be some
0: telltale signs that someone has been acquiring um, uh, digital assets, cryptocurrency, or or it might be that that a a partner, you know, um, knows that the other partner, because they've told them over the Mm. years, is hey, you know, I've um, been doing these, you know, jobs and I've been being paid in Bitcoin. Um, I've got all this Bitcoin, and I've been spending the Bitcoin. Hopefully, they
1: (laughs) hopefully they've been. Converting that some of that Bitcoin to cash so that they can then pay their tax. Pay
0: their taxes. But, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's going to be a chain that can typically um, be be followed. You know, so you yeah. might use an exchange like um, Easy Crypto, yeah, um, which is one of the better known um, platforms in New Zealand, and um, and Janine Granger and her team they're mm. uh, fantastic. They run a really uh, mm. really good operation. Um, they will have, you know, user account information and things like that, yeah. so um, can possibly get a disclosure order. or something.
0: But, like but even um, the blockchain of Bitcoin itself. Uh, I mean, there was there was a myth that lasted. I think it's now been debunked in recent times. That one of the advantages of cryptocurrency is is um, the um, being able to 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 the to, to hide identities you know the uh, anonymous aspect of it on, on anonymity you know be able to you know hide your tracks but but that's been i think rebuffed now i think yeah, um, is it,
1: yeah. Uh, when you think about when bitcoin was first started um, first being adopted it was used quite heavily by criminals yeah. buying drugs and doing other things Thinking on the, the, silk, the on the yeah, silk road yeah, you know yeah, yeah. The dark, dark web. The dark web. Yeah, precisely. And you can see that there have been uh, multiple seizures of assets, of digital mm. assets, by law enforcement um, in relation to um, investigations concerning Silk Road and things like that. So there's this. Uh, there's uh, undoubtedly some anonymity, but mm. there is also uh, the ability. the The blockchain can be very transparent, and you can trace it and um that in in my view you know when you um speak to companies like chainalysis these digital forensics companies who um um uh, assist law enforcement and things like that with um tracking digital assets I, in my personal opinion um it's actually a terrible way to uh try and launder money or yeah. um uh, conceal things, because it's it's permanent. You can always go and find the record and follow it. What you have to do is try and work out um, what a particular wallet address, who might control that, and that can be a challenging process, but if it hits, a say, a centralised exchange like a, a Coinbase mm-hmm. or a, um, a Binance, you may be able to get an order that that party um, provide information uh, about the account holder, because usually the the those parties are subject to anti money laundering. Um,
0: uh, I guess the law, ulti-
1: and they have yeah. to collect, yeah. you know, KYC. Yeah,
0: I, I guess the ultimate, James. Wouldn't it be that um, <laughs> just thinking about it legally is it, it, it doesn't need to be relationship property. It, it it could be any other legal action where you know w- what cryptocurrency existed. What's happened to it? You know, uh, yep. where is it? Does is it, is it still there?
1: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm aware of one case. Um, I can't remember the name of the case off the top of my head, but um, uh, where a one party in the family court applied for the appointment of a receiver mm. uh, in order to um, be able to um, get information try and ascertain whether they were digital assets.
0: Yeah. Um, of course, this is relevant to where you've got an exchange custodian scenario, but if it's, if it's you know, that self-custodian, wouldn't it just be a matter of getting, a, a, you know, potentially, just getting an order requiring a party, most likely going to be a defendant, to actually just hand over their key? Because once you've got access to the key, as you say, you know, you've... They've just given you given you everything. I think there's
1: a lot of risk for everyone involved if there was an order to just hand over the key. Mm. um, It's probably more likely a more secure option would be to uh, hand it to a a trusted custodian Mm. uh, or to um, um, transfer the digital asset into a a multi-signature account, um, a multi-signature wallet where you you can't transact it and move it.
0: just, uh, just thinking about it um, from a, an evidential point of view, and, I, and I, look, I pick up your point about the appointment of a receiver. I guess the courts, there would be nothing stopping the, the High Court, you know, here in New Zealand, um, uh, appointing someone independent to, um, you know, receive the key and provide a report to the court and the parties as to, as, as to the
1: history of, of, of the
0: assets associated with that key.
1: Uh, in, in theory, I don't see why not. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's a risk for that custodian to, mm. um, you know, to take on. But if they're prepared to do it, I mean, there's some professional custodians, and I think this is something we will increasingly see in um, uh, as the ecosystem for digital assets and the demand for digital assets grows. Is that there will be more custodian services that are heavily regulated, that they might have insurance or um, and it, it is there. You know, they're not doing other things like exchanging the currencies. They are just holding them as, yeah. as a, a specialized business. It's a bit, bit like a, a bank vault or something like
0: that. Yeah. Well, look, let's just quickly jump back to um, estate planning. You know, what would what would be your advice to people who were wanting to take a responsible approach to estate planning, and they were holding, you know, you know, more than nominal. Digital assets. Uh,
1: well, there's. Uh, I guess it depends on the um, the value of the assets. It's always one consideration: how much. Um, uh, well, let's just say let's just
0: say they're lucky enough to be holding, let's just say a hundred grand in Bitcoin. So. Um, there well, it's are. not many
1: bitcoins. There, yeah, there, yeah, not uh, just not quite two. Yeah, not uh, quite any, two. Yeah,
0: they've got not quite two bitcoins.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, many uh, hundreds of thousands of satoshis. Yeah, um, which are the how bitcoins are broken down. Yeah, um, there are services like there's a, a great New Zealand company called Everlasting, mm-hmm. and they, uh, for example, offer like multi-signature. Uh, type of state planning um, services, and that would be a a, a good option. And there's yeah. obviously a cost of uh, for that service. Um, in terms of uh, preparing your estate, you want to have um, some guidance for your executor as to how they are to find the assets. Mm um you we had a look yeah it's <laughs> you, and if if you're wanting to do things securely i think you need to as i said um split up the process between more than one professional so that and mm. uh, there's not a single point of failure where where everything can be lost and that can be a uh, that can cause some inconvenience um and uh, that's why there is this Trade off between some people who want to hold their things on exchange, where it's a lot easier for, say, a liquidator or an executor to get the account information and get access to it on death, uh, than self custody. Yeah, you know. So there's um, there's different risk profiles holding it in different ways.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, no, that's look, that's a good good angle. Cryptopia. Cryptopia. Okay. Um, what what was Cryptopia? Um, what was it?
1: <laughs> so uh, um, Cryptopia was a, a New Zealand exchange in Christchurch and um, it had benefited, I guess, from um, a very wild bull run. So crypto mm-hmm. markets go through these cycles um, of um, bull and bear cycles. They um, can... Uh, where the value of the crypto just explodes, but then it reaches a point where um, um, it then uh, drops dramatically. And typically, there's like a four year cycle. Um, some say it's linked to um, uh, Bitcoin and it's what, what's called its uh, halvening, where its reward gets. Um, the mining gets halved, sort of roughly every four years. But um, as I understand it, there was um, a new so New Zealand business. It grew rapidly because all of a sudden it was doing a, a, a significant volume of transactions. The way that exchanges make money is that they uh, take a fee for for doing a transaction. And
0: Now, now um, can I can I ask, Cryptopia was, was this? Uh, Uh, a business that was set up by, you know, a um, well-established organisation in the banking and finance or was it a sort of a garage, you know, a couple of guys with some computers?
1: I I think it was more of the latter. Yeah. Um, But as they did grow, they rapidly expanded their number of employees. Mm. Um, They did bring in um, other, I guess, um, individuals with a more established business backgrounds, um, they um, took on you know big leases and things like that to accommodate all their employees. I guess there was this um, uh, expectation that the market was going to keep doing its thing and profit was going to continue as it was. Yeah. And then when you hit the bear market, crypto winter, as it's often called, all of a sudden the transaction... Numbers are not there. The revenue's not there, and they had um, got out over their skis and, and just um, uh, committed themselves to you know more liabilities than they could afford. They also suffered, um, believe some hacks. So there was you know sort of 20, 25 to thirty odd million um, lost in the hacks, including sort of fifteen you know, percent of customer funds. Mm. So um, that that's probably a fact of not having adequate um, security, digital cybersecurity. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: Just having those vulnerabilities. And in March 2019, it all came to a, to an end, and and uh, liquidators were appointed to
1: them. Yes.
0: Um, uh, Russell Moore and David Rus- Rusko at uh, at Grant Thornton. They seem to be now the go-to liquidators for these these sorts
1: of failures. They're also the liquidators of Deset.
0: With like Deset as well,
1: and that—that's yeah, that's, another New Zealand exchange which recently fell over.
0: Yeah, now we were DACIT based. Uh,
1: um, oh, I here in Auckland, weren't they? I couldn't tell you off the yeah. top of my head. I didn't use Deset.
0: Okay, well, we might come back to DACIT later, but um, I think Cryptopia is a really good example of what can happen when a an, an exchange here in New Zealand fails. But just having a look over. Um, uh, Russell Moore and David Rusko, Grant Thornton uh, this isn't a plug for Grant Thornton by the way this yeah this is um, but they just happen to be the, the liquidators but I was having a look over their ninth report which they put out in June last year um, so they reported that their expenses were uh 22.1 million um, which included 6.25 million in liquidators fees um, so if you, if you they were appointed in May, so that takes it through for four years, um, uh, 6.2 million in fees, um, a lot. <laughs> uh, more than 5 million in employee and service costs, because of course you've got to keep the, the, the systems running, you know, like you, you, you've you got to keep the computers up and, and going, and, and you've got to have someone to, I guess, operate the computers. million in setting up and running customer claims portals, um, which which apparently they had 94,000 queries. I mean, that's a lot of... Remember,
1: um, Cryptopia is a global business. Yeah. I guess one of the challenges for the liquidator, and that that is a a significant amount.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know if you have in front of you what the total value of assets uh, that they are managing is, but I expect uh, the... Legal fees are um, still small compared to the total value of the assets that they are managing. Mm. Um, You know these assets are incredibly volatile, but you know if you look at twenty nineteen, Bitcoin was probably around three or four thousand US. Um, Certainly, twenty twenty, it was around nine thousand US. Yeah, it's currently was it forty two, forty three today. I know, right. isn't right. it great?
0: The longer it goes on, the more the assets actually go up in value. <laughs> so, so,
1: so yeah, I mean, that's not the case for all of them. No, right? A lot of them yeah. actually go to zero. Yeah, the, the vast majority of them probably yeah. go to zero, and against Bitcoin will probably be going down. But um, you know, the, essentially, the liquidators are dealing with enormous number of customers, yeah. a lot of complexity in terms of security. Um, you know just uh as you said ninety odd thousand queries queries just yeah. a, like significant amount of work for professional services people to be undertaking um, to try and keep the asset secure um and uh and then ascertain one of the big challenges that they've had which is um, significant in, in terms of the case law that we've got is uh to, deciding whether or not the claimants in the liquidation were um, beneficiaries of trusts, that they uh, say that they... Say, for example, they claimed that they... Uh, the account user claimed that they had one Bitcoin. Were they entitled to one Bitcoin? Mm-hmm. Or were they just an um, a insolvency creditor um, where they might have a, a, a claim for part of that Bitcoin, you know, with the pool of creditors. And,
0: and, the, and the pooling of, like, if, if, if we keep things simple, don't worry about other cryptocurrencies, we'll just say Bitcoin, you know, can they point to the specific Bitcoin that was theirs, that was being held by Cryptopia, or was it in a consolidated pool and and uh, they just all share as as unsecured creditors?
1: So this is yeah. um, what the court had done to take, was, yeah. you know, an analysis. First of all, could, could these digital assets be... Be property, mm. um, and then if they if they could be property, could they be the property that is the subject of a trust? Yeah, and then in terms of what the terms and conditions between the um, exchange and the users was was that uh, sufficient to create a trust? Mm. And um, so it's you know, a pretty significant case as far as. Crypto is concerned because I, I believe it was one of the first cases globally which just came outright and said, "Yes, this uh, is digital assets can be property and it can be the subject matter of a trust." Prior to that, there was this argument that um, uh, crypto is just mere information; it's just code within a decentralized network, and that's all it is. Yeah, it, do- it, it doesn't have any value. Uh, and- it's just a
0: series of zeros and ones. That, that are you being know, run pa- through
1: packaged within blocks yeah. on yeah. a on a blockchain, yeah,
0: yeah, packaged <laughs> within blocks, um, and and of course, I mean, there's there's benefit in the law clarifying these matters because these these are things that were uncertain. Um, you know, they've spent three and a half million on legal expenses, uh, quite a few courts to the trips to the high court. Yeah,
1: um, and they, I, I believe that, initially they um, had they obtained orders to go out and um, um, be able to use some of the cryptocurrency in order to fund costs, in, in order to you know, secure um, servers which were located in a different country and things like that?
0: Well, well yeah, and I, I guess this is the point about um, the insolvency aspect of it is, is that the um, uh, if the cryptocurrency is an asset of the company rather than held on trust, then the liquidators, you know, under sort of first principles of insolvency law are able to to liquidate the the assets and use the funds of that towards meeting you know reasonable expenses, um, and that was one of the one of the cases they had last year was was seeking approval from the High Court to liquidate effectively five million New Zealand dollars worth of um, cryptocurrency to to keep it all going. Um, just as a kind of a side note on that, um, there was the. Um, <laughs> There was a theft by one of the employees, a Michael Clasto, who was sentenced to nine months home detention for stealing a quarter of a million worth of Bitcoin. Um, of course, the, the cruel irony was that he was head of security yes. for Cryptopia. Um, yeah, it's kind of like uh, uh, who's um, who's guarding the guards. Um, <clears throat> but look, uh, apparently, just the, the just going back to the, that court case about getting approval for the $5 million, um, the liquidators are saying that their reasonable costs and expenses are $350,000 a month. Um, it's a it's quite a big undertaking. And I suspect part of it is that classic scenario, well, this is the first time that such a large exchange in New Zealand has collapsed. So there's a bit of, I guess, upscalling going on on how to to try and manage it through yes and um,
1: and look, I think the crypt i don't know the the numbers off the top of my head, but I know that there are numerous the the platform was um, allowing exchange exchanges of numerous different types of mm. of cryptocurrency yeah. uh, so um, you have this scenario where you can have uh, what are called forks in the. In the protocol, where there is a differing in view of, um, so it gets quite technical and, and possibly a bit beyond my pay grade. But mm. the uh, there's a disagreement as to what should happen with the tech. Should should the protocol stay the same or should it change in some way? And um, what can happen is they can fork the chain so that it's one one chain will um keep doing blocks as per the original protocol mm-hmm. and then the next one might might change the protocol in some way and so when you have this forking scenario you can go from having um not just one digital asset but a different digital asset as well yeah so yeah. um uh, there was um uh, this event uh called well they uh, called it the block size wars in relation to bitcoin there was an argument as I understand it, where some of the um, the developers who were um, involved in um, the coding, because, you know, the code is constantly getting upgraded and things like that, they argued that uh, well, there's a push for the blocks to be a bigger size to include more transactions and things like that. So there was um, a, a differing in view, and so... The original chain stayed as Bitcoin and then the fork of the chain uh, came off and that became Bitcoin Cash. Yeah. So you have the scenario um, potentially with Cryptopia, and I'm not across the detail, where you have different protocols forking and then there's having to deal with um, multiple uh, different assets uh, compared to what they originally had. You can have the scenario in these insolvencies where they are insolvent for quite a long time, and then um, you have, you know, parties coming and looking to buy up claims or people transferring their claims because they are sick of waiting. And you know, mm. then you have issues identifying: well, was this the actual? You know, was this a, a, a in terms of KYC? Was this a, the actual account user, or is this um, a imposter or impersonator? And um, all of that takes a lot of um, you know i t support and um uh, yeah so I, I mean I can see how it might seem like an enormous amount of money, mm. but if you were talking about uh two hundred three hundred million uh it's it's still in order to protect. Something that was probably 100 million in 2019, which is now 300 million. It's, you know, I'd be saying it's, you know, uh, I haven't done any work with Grant Thornton for a long time, but, you know, that is a, uh, I'd be saying that is money well spent.
0: Yeah, look, I guess it's not just the size of the um, assets that are being, having to be managed through during a liquidation. But it's it's probably more the complexity. because I mean, New Zealand's had heaps of uh, failure. You know, failure. I mean, just just take for example South Canterbury Finance. Mm. You know, one point six billion um, loss um, yes. bailed out by the New Zealand taxpayer to a large degree. Um, but so so having large failures in, in financial services. Um, you know, unfortunately, New Zealand, you know, has had them. Okay. But the complexity is probably more around the issue of a lot of the account holders are overseas. Um, it's identifying them uh, or even them coming forward. Hmm. Um, I, I mean, I suspect that, you know, by the end of the liquidation, if it ever ends, um, that there'll probably be a, a lot of unaccounted for digital currency sitting sitting there. And yes. then that's someone's got to figure out what to do with it.
1: And um, I, I think the... Um it's been a while since I read the crypto cases, but you know they—I think they are provisioning for that mm. for those um, claimants who may not have come forward, or where um, there uh, is, um, yeah, it's uncertain who who holds it. Uh, yeah. But you have this really almost unique scenario with crypto that's different to other insolvencies, where you can have a company that at the time it goes insolvent, uh, it might. Um, Know, the the value of the claims and the liquidation might um let, let's call them um 10 million yeah. but then because of the way it it can work it's so volatile you know in a couple of years it could be 100 million and that company which wasn't solvent at the time actually has a massive excess of uh, of assets yeah and you know the the question is who does that value accrue to does it accrue to the um, to the secured creditors and the unsecured creditors and then to the shareholders mm. or does it go to the account holders and that yeah, sort of it's a
0: great question uh, you know it's um,
1: this a, this watch the space this is a reason yeah. why you know we had a um, there was a very significant uh, exchange failure in 2014 called Mount gox at the time that was the biggest exchange uh, in terms of um, Market share transactions, and you know, that's that's there's been litigation over that for about 10, 10 years,
0: mm. you know. So that, sorry, was that Hong Kong? Mount Gox was Hong Kong based, or was it uh, Japan? It was Japan. It was Japan. Okay. Um, what protections or improvements do you think, you know, could be introduced in New Zealand? Um, perhaps ones that have, cause look, we're not the only country that is. Having to deal with the emergence of digital assets, um, presumably other countries have thought about how do we how do we better protect you know consumers and the vulnerable or those that are at risk. Um, have you got any thoughts on on what New Zealand perhaps could look to or, or models that it could consider replicating?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess this sort of gets back to what we we're talking about. Mm. Um, there's no no specific crypto law at the moment, but there yeah. are potentially lots of other um, existing laws that could apply. We've got this developing body of case law that's um, uh, applying to digital assets, uh, with cases like Cryptopia and, and others. Um, you have uh, lots of existing laws which can apply, like for example, Property Relationships Act, yep. um, uh, the Fair Trading Act can apply to influencers or other promoters of um protocols and things like that um and so i guess one of the the key challenges that this space has had and this is a um something that um, um i i anticipate lots of um governments and regulators are dealing with uh, around the globe is that understanding and getting educated on how it all works is um, a real key challenge actually because you've got this technology that's just moving so fast and um, things are changing so rapidly. Uh, It's actually moving through the lawmaking process fast enough to try and keep up with it, but then not making law that is, um, too burdensome, you know. Too uh, that encourages overregulation that stifles innovation mm. and things like that. Um, while at the same time, is doing enough to protect consumers and ensure security of the financial mm. system and things like that. So,
0: so, so where does the our, our, our financial markets regulations and you know and our financial market um, uh, authority, the, the FMA? Yep. Where do they sit in this? Because it seems to be—I mean, I think the Cryptopia judgment sort of found that uh, cryptocurrencies are an unregulated financial product. Um, where does the, the FMA, Financial Markets Authority, and our financial markets regulations, where does that sit yeah, at the moment with all of this?
1: So I guess there's um, probably the the principal regulator would be the FMA. Mm. Uh, there's also the Commerce Commission who can look at fair dealing as does the FMA, but then you've also got other regulators like the Inland Revenue Department, the um, uh, RBNZ, mm-hmm. uh, because it, you know it all um, police uh, as well, you know. Um, so the one of the principal issues, I guess, is is a token a financial product. Mm-hmm. And uh, and is a business that's dealing in uh, crypto digital assets, is that providing a financial service? Um, and so, um, uh, are these businesses um, providing a um, uh, like a money transfer service? Do they do they need to? Uh, are they subject to anti money laundering, counter financing of terrorism laws? Um, So we do have the um, Commerce Commission uh, looking out for consumers. You've got the FMA looking out for consumers as well. Um, But there's a a, a big question about are digital assets a financial product? Are they a debt security? Are they a – because in New Zealand, we've got um, sort of four key categories of financial product, equity, securities, debt securities, managed investment schemes and derivatives – And tokens themselves don't necessarily fit easily into... um, Well, that's too much of a generalization. Some cryptocurrencies won't easily fit into any of those baskets. And um, it's a real challenge for the regulators to understand what a particular technology or protocol is you know, what the promoters and the developers are trying to achieve and does that fit in the basket of these uh, financial products uh, and are they covered then by the um, FMA's jurisdiction um, and that is something where the people who are developing them and, you know, they a lot of the time they uh, won't necessarily anticipate that they might be creating a financial product they're just trying to Create some tech that helps them get ahead, or you know, helps uh, create something useful for uh, humanity. So, um, yeah, it's uh, we've we've had a um, a parliamentary inquiry into digital assets um, a couple of years ago. This is
0: what, what was the outcome? What came out of that?
1: So we have um, we recently had a report by our um, just let me find out financial uh, finance and expenditure committee um so this is um, i guess i'm trying to remember uh exactly i, I made a submission to parliament in mm. my previous firm uh in relation to this um, i guess when my uh, uh, interest in um uh, digital assets was right at uh O C D levels. Right, you know? okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> being, being a li- little bit of a little bit OCD on it. Yeah. yeah. Um it was, and you know, we made that submission, I think it's gotta to, got to be like 2020, 2021. Mm. Um so there was not a lot of activity for, for a couple of years, but um it was in August the Finance and Expenditure Committee released its report mm. um making making recommendations. Um and uh, I guess to summarise what they are, um, um, you might want to speak to Jeremy Muir from um, uh, Minter Allison or um, Dr Alexandra Sims at um, Auckland University because they were uh, some of the key uh, leads. Ad- advisors yeah. to the uh, committee uh, for more detail on it. But um, uh, their recommendations that were that New Zealand should adopt a more um, proactive approach to digital assets. Uh, they suggested um, that there should be regulation to boost consumer protection, which is good, mm. and also create uh, industry growth. And they recommended that the FMA should be the primary primary regulator. There should be cross-agency working groups to work with the industry, edu- educational courses at secondary and tertiary level, directives regarding immigration tax and anti-money laundering, etc. I guess there's this... Um, sort of broad desire to uh, encourage parties who want to develop the technology mm. for the benefit of New Zealand yeah. and um, so that it's, these projects are not getting shut down early or wanting to head overseas to a different jurisdiction just where it's easier and less risky for them to do, um, to set up what they're uh, trying to set up.
0: So perhaps um, you know, rather than just tinker, actually um, introduce a regulatory framework that enables the development of the industry in a in a, in a responsible manner. So look, just going forward, um, you know, f- for listeners, I make this very clear. Here's here's the express disclaimer: here, there is no financial advice being given whatsoever.
1: Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Well, insert appropriate think the lawyer's disclaimer. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. But um, what would be um, what would be your advice for someone who who perhaps uh, is would like to get into cryptocurrency or already is' in, is involved in cryptocurrency in terms of things they could perhaps look at doing to protect themselves a bit more um, to ensure that you know their investment or you know or, or their foray into crypto, um, isn't as 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 high risk as it as it could otherwise be. Like what what things could people do?
1: It's um, it's a good question. It's a really good question. One of the things that um, when I first got into the subject matter, uh, someone said to me, um, what, you know, while you've got this industry that started off full of scammers and you know just being used on dark web and Silk Road. It is moving really rapidly to um, uh, being more integrated in the mainstream. Um, you have uh, enormous institutions, as I said, like um, huge asset managers like BlackRock, Fidelity, uh, all coming in to um, where they recognise that there is demand for um, digital assets, and they are trying to provide a, a product to help. Um meet the market you know mm. this is, these are funds where um, potentially pension funds and and um, uh, other you know funds that haven't you know like a Kiwi saver fund that previously because of the way that they're constructed haven't been able to invest in digital assets for whatever reason mm. so there there are enormous players coming into the market there's enormous talent in the space building. Things all the time. Uh, there's enormous opportunity with these um, markets, and um, so I think one of the the things that um, I was told, if you are going to invest, uh, you should assume that there are lots of scammers around. Yeah, um, it's not like dealing with centralized entities like a bank. You know, as Um, be very careful. Don't invest any more than you are prepared to lose. Mm. Um, Because what they said to me was, it could all go to zero. Yeah. And um, one of the key things is educating yourself. Spend, Spend time. Work out what might be the best approach for you, which might be the best way for you to hold. Um. Your digital assets. Might it be um, entirely self custody? Might it be self custody over multiple wallets? Might it be a combination of different exchanges, different wallets? You know, get advice on it.
0: Do um, your research.
1: Do your research. Yeah. Um, but yeah, don't uh, don't overcommit yourself. I mean, you if you are confident in the way that um, uh, it works. Then maybe you're prepared to take a bigger allocation of what your, you know, um, what your investments are. I guess you know, there's an argument to be made that whatever every investment carries risk. Hundred percent. Some people can yeah. make the argument that holding New Zealand cash is more risky than holding New Zealand property, mm. um, which is you know more risky than holding some other form of asset. You know, and there's every person has different risk profiles and, and things like that. But um yeah, do your do your research. Go to places like Blockchain NZ website. Go to Callahan Innovation Web 3s um our website. Go to places uh like Easy Cryptos Educational Resources. These um these places uh have some great um materials on their sites. You know, um, people like me who are mad on the topic like to mm. write articles about them and post them on LinkedIn and put them on our uh, law firm's website. Um, you know, we do podcasts and, yeah. and, and things like that. So, um, And there well,
0: are a lot of, there are a lot of podcasts out there on cryptocurrency. Yes. There, yeah. And absolutely. which is, which is great. And there's some, and, and look for, you know, for the, you know, Listeners, uh, I mean, I always try to do a bit of research for every every. Well, in fact, I always do research for every podcast. But one part of my research that I got a lot of value out of for pre- preparing for this podcast was TVNZ on Demand Plus, whatever it's called. Um, their the website there's a there's a great series on um, cryptocurrency. Um, it's, I think it's a five part yeah. series, and you know, I found that. Actually really informative uh, to, you know, at a really easy, digestible level. Mm. Explained you don't need to be super IT literate um, or a techie to get your head around it. Um, and, you know, that's free. Perfect. Just go on and, yeah. and watch it. There's, yeah. um,
1: there's other great resources. I mean, like, you know, even watching something like uh, the other night I watched uh, on Netflix, Bitcoin. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Which is, I haven't watched it yet, but I, I know of it, yeah. Yeah, um, and that was uh, about these guys who are j- just straight-out scammers, yep. you know, a bit like um, Sam Backman-Fried from FTX, mm. you know, um, guys who, uh, ju- you know, set out essentially just defraud- were defrauding people, but mm. um, were bad actors uh, using digital assets as their medium. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily the fault of the digital asset Or yeah. you
0: know well, the vehicle uh, to, to to commit yeah. a
1: crime. but there's yeah. one one of the resources that um, I found really valuable when I was uh, when I was really learning the topic, um, I've watched an enormous amount of uh, a guy named Andreas Antonopoulos. Um, he's talks ex- uh, extensively about Bitcoin. I watched um, there's a whole bunch of free uh, lectures for MIT, where um, uh, a guy named Gary Gensler, who's now the head of the SEC, who is one of the people trying to regulate crypto assets um, globally, he is teaching uh, his MIT class about digital assets about 10 years ago. Um, you know, f- and still uh, relevant today. Totally yep. free, yep. You know, um, um, amazing resource. But, yeah, it's um, identifying uh, those. Because now, when I started really looking into this, there was plenty of information a, a, about the topic online and in books, but there weren't that many books. Um, and since the, the last bull market, there's just been an explosion in the amount of resources. So, it, I, you know, it can be a real challenge listening you know, trying to work out well which is a good resource to listen to, and mm. who is just a scammer who's you know essentially pumping their own bag of some particular snake uh, oil. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. and and this is part, something that is probably going to scare a lot of people off. You know, you have someone like Sam Bankman Fried who was you know this. Um, almost like a wall street poster child came from Jane street. He's, Mm. uh, which is, a, um, you know, uh, I think they were called a prop trading firm. He he has, you know, his parents were um, both university professors. One may have even been a law professor. Mm. Uh, and then he's, you know, stealing billions of dollars from customers. And, um, you have this scenario where that's going to scare a lot of people off. Having some awareness and being nervous about certain things and um, being cautious is is actually good in this space. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of regulatory action, particularly overseas by the SEC, which is designed to, I guess, clean up the space, encourage people who are developing and... Um, you know, making protocols uh, to um, go through legal channels, do things you know with appropriate disclosure and things like that. So, um,
0: yeah. so be careful, be cautious, do your research.
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, right. and and you know, if you're, I'm not going to tell you what to allocate to, but um, generally, you know, you've got the um, the coins that are bigger market cap, so. Um, T- if the total crypto market is something like 1.2 I can't remember what it is uh, 1.2 trillion, trillion maybe. Trillion. Yeah. Um, mm. Bitcoin is the biggest share, is the biggest market cap. Um, and then Ethereum is, is next. You know, those uh, protocols are um, and those tokens are going to typically have been around longer. They've been um, going to be more secure. Because, you know, if it's like Bitcoin, it's been under constant cyber attack, you know, for nearly 15 years. Yeah. Um, they're also the most liquid so that, you know, you, you're going to have a, there's more chance of having a buyer. If you're going to go there's out more, and buy. There's more trading going on. More trading. Yeah. You're going to, If you're going to go out and buy some rare NFT, mm. you know, um, there might be only a handful of people who will buy that. So you might not be able to sell it straight away. Mm. Um uh, so,
0: a lot of factors to take into consideration. But, um, is is there a role to play? Because neither you, you and I we we're not financial advisors, and we've given no financial advice today not at all. <laughs> just education. Uh, just education. Um, but is there a role to play in, in New Zealand? Do you think for um, you know, licensed financial adv- advisors to, to to get into the space?
1: Oh, absolutely. Mm. I think it's, um, you know, with um, the approval of what we had recently, the approval of the Bitcoin Spot ETF, yeah. which is uh, an exchange-traded fund for Bitcoin, you had um, all of these really large asset managers um, saying that there needed to be a um, vehicle in the United States market where um, – where people can own units in a fund that own the underlying Bitcoin all of those um, uh, sort of products and and that you know there's there's demand for it and um, yeah the more that um, these big institutions come into the space the the I guess, the more confidence people can have.
0: Well, they'll bring their own disciplines into it. Of course, and
1: they are professional asset managers uh, and um, there are going to be financial advisors who are going to have their clients who say, I oh, would be interested in getting some Bitcoin. They're going to have to understand, you know, mm. well, if the biggest asset managers in the world are now interested in this product and these products are available, mm. Uh, should I be allocating some? And uh, So there's a big opportunity for financial advisors to give advice in this space. And, um, yeah, I, th- I mean, when you, you look at the rates of adoption of digital assets, and some figures that I've read have suggested that the ad- adoption of digital assets has been sort of greater than the adoption of the internet in the 90s. You know, it's trending up. i um, looked at some figures recently, and... Something like seven percent of New Zealanders hold digital assets. Most of those tend to be younger males. Yeah. They tend to like a bit um bit more risk. Um and, as, as, and, that yeah. that that um that those demographics of ownership and um use by individuals but also use by mainstream businesses who want to do, you know, VIP um consumer rewards and things like that mm. uh, is only going to increase. I, I, you know, the Coachella Music Festival was using UNITE NFTs for, for VIP um, ticket holders. I understand, don't hold me to this, that uh, Starbucks loyalty programs with their coffee stamps mm. are actually NFTs or done via blockchain technology. So you're, you're going to see, my bet is there's going to be a lot more adoption
0: more uptake. I mean, yeah. it's it, it's it's a little. Well, perhaps we go go back to the internet. I mean, I've I've never really heard anyone say, oh, like I've just decided I'm not going to use the internet anymore, or email, or even more extreme. I've never heard anyone say, oh, I'm I'm over money. I'm not going to use it anymore. We don't need it. <laughs>
1: oh, I'm going totally off grid. <laughs> yeah. Totally
0: off grid. Hey, James Cochran, This has been a fantastic. Uh, Fantastic podcast! Uh, yeah, it's been great to have you here as a guest. Thanks, Chris. Um, I've enjoyed it. It's, we've covered a lot. A lot. Yeah, we have. yeah, we've covered a lot. So there's been a lot covered. Uh, I guess in many respects, it just shows that this is a big topic. Uh, there's a lot to cover. Uh, it, it it has its application in law, and it's going to continue to do so. So hey, look, thank you for joining me, and um, yeah, great way to kick off the uh, kick off twenty twenty
1: four. Thanks, Chris. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-S-O-N dot Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here Down Under.